The What Would It Take podcast is co-produced by Anabaptist World and me, Ben Tapper. The views expressed here are my own and do not necessarily represent the official positions of Anabaptist World. To learn more, visit anabaptistworld.org. Laverne was walking with her husband and godson in an alley by McDonald's one night in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Several officers approached her and began harassing Laverne's husband, cursing at him, calling him names, and telling him to pick up the trash. One officer then turned to Laverne and said, quote, I don't like your husband. You need to find a new husband. Naturally, this really bothered Laverne, so she told him that she didn't see a ring on his finger, so why could he talk? It was at that point that the officer put Laverne in handcuffs and tried to arrest her before his colleague intervened and said, hey, you can't arrest her. If you arrest her, you've got to arrest these other two people as well. So instead, the officer told Laverne that she needed to show up in court or that she would be arrested later. Why did this occur? The reason is unclear. What is clear is that this happened frequently. Laverne noted that the officers just didn't like her husband and that he had a, a reputation among them. So they would frequently harass him and those with him like Laverne and her godson. And unfortunately, this isn't a unique situation. See, Laverne was homeless. And as is often the case, she experienced regular harassment by law enforcement despite the fact that she was working to get back on her feet. During an interview about this incident, Laverne said, quote, If you don't pay your mortgage, you might be sleeping on the bench next to me, but don't treat me like a dog. Just because you got something today, all that can be taken away from you like it was taken from me in one day. It don't take a whole year to lose your life. It just takes one day, end quote. And Laverne is right. We make all kinds of assumptions about people like her, but the truth is, Our society is set up in such a way that it just takes one bad day. An unexpected job loss, your landlord raising your rent, a medical emergency, a car accident, any number of things can alter your life and plunge you into housing insecurity. Most Americans don't have large saving accounts built up and without family to fall back on, it just takes one day to find yourself without a home. This is episode 10 of the What Would It Take podcast. Join me as I ask, what would it take for everyone to have a home? Listen in. Now, as we jump in, we need to take some time and define the issue that we're talking about. There's a difference between chronic homelessness and temporary homelessness. Chronic homelessness is used to describe people who have experienced homelessness for at least a year or repeatedly while struggling with a disabling condition such as a serious mental illness, substance use disorder, or a physical disability. Temporary homelessness is a bit harder to spot even though as many as 75% of people are experiencing homelessness and fall into this category. So temporary homelessness occurs when you have a life situation shift dramatically and you find yourself without housing. So maybe you lose your job or maybe you have to flee from a domestic violence situation in which your partner, your abuser, was the primary income owner. And so you suddenly find yourself in a place where you can't afford safe and secure housing. And so you are homeless. 
And again, that's the vast majority of people who are experiencing homelessness. They're families with young children, they're single individuals, they're couples who have had life circumstances pop up and they find themselves in a situation in which they can't find secure, stable, and affordable housing for a certain amount of time. Now, there's this mythical stigma associated with homelessness that says people who are homeless or housing insecure are lazy. They're often treated as others and characterized as a problem to be solved or hidden. Recently, Los Angeles, California was accused of clearing out homeless populations in and around Union Station in order to prepare for the Oscars. Now, the homeless residents were given the option to stay at a local hotel, but they were also told that if they didn't leave Union Station, their belongings would be destroyed. Now, the city council denied these claims, but it seems likely that this happened because this happens all across the country. And it has happened in LA before. Whenever a major event takes place, cities find ways to sweep the homeless population under the rug so that the cameras can't see them. Tent camps and other places where people who are homeless or housing insecure congregate are regularly under threat of being cleared away. Moreover, unhoused folks also face regular harassment and the threat of arrest by police. Day in and day out, they're treated as second-class citizens, and they're judged as people who don't want to work, who are uncontrollable addicts, or who are dangerous miscreants that need to be controlled so that they don't scare off paying customers and drive away business. But is this a, an accurate characterization? And the answer is no, it's, it's not. Rather than looking at these folks as people who just don't want to work or who want to freeload, let's ask ourselves what the actual causes of homelessness are. First, and maybe most obviously, it's a lack of affordable housing. Since the 1980s, affordable housing options have continued to dwindle while wages have stagnated. This means that many people are simply unable to find affordable housing options. As of January 2020, 8 million people in the United States paid half of their monthly wages towards rent. Folks, that is unsustainable, and it means that any interruption in income for those folks could jeopardize their housing security. Healthcare is another issue and cause of homelessness. An acute mental health crisis can lead to housing disruption and homelessness. And homelessness, in turn, can exacerbate chronic mental or physical conditions. A person can experience chronic homelessness when their health becomes disabling and it's too difficult to maintain stable housing on their own. According to endhomelessness.org, on a given night in 2017, 20% of the homeless population reported having a serious mental illness, 16% reported conditions related to chronic substance abuse, and more than 10,000 people had HIV or AIDS. Conditions such as diabetes, heart disease, and HIV are found at high rates among the homeless population, sometimes three to six times higher than that of the general population. People who have mental health and substance use disorders and who are homeless are more likely to have immediate, life-threatening physical illnesses and live in dangerous conditions. Also, more than 10% of people who seek substance abuse or mental health treatment in our public health system are homeless. Escaping violence, especially domestic violence, can also be a contributing factor or cause of homelessness. See, housing insecurity and homelessness can occur when women are living with a partner who is the primary income earner and they have to flee the relationship due to domestic violence and abuse. 
And even if the income is distributed equally in the relationship, fleeing still means a substantial loss. And if there are children or other dependents involved, families can be forced into homelessness and into shelters. There's also the large issue of racial inequality. African Americans account for roughly 13% of the U.S. population, yet they make up 39% of those experiencing homelessness and nearly 50% of homeless families with children. Systemic racism continues to affect the way that black and brown folks live and move in this society. It impacts job access, access to health care and social services. So it stands to reason that it's a contributing factor to homelessness for many as well. Fortunately, there are a lot of people who have given some thought to these issues and written and talked about how we can address them from a systematic approach. So I'm going to pull from a variety of sources here, including nhomelessness.org and Strong Towns, among others. One solution is to offer more permanent supportive housing. This sort of housing is typically an apartment building of sorts where residents may live in their own spaces but have access to on-site counselors, support groups, meal programs, and other services that can help them live with their health challenges. We also need to continue to expand access to the social safety net so that more people qualify for temporary assistance for needy families and Medicaid. This will help ensure that healthcare and basic survival expenses like food aren't barriers to paying for housing or finding work. For those fleeing domestic violence, short and long-term housing vouchers can go a long way in securing a new place to live and rebuilding their lives. And so it's important that local agencies and maybe even government agencies offer more opportunities for them to access short and long-term housing vouchers. It should also be noted that things like requirements around credit scores, background checks, limitations on previous evictions, and demands for large security deposits or multiple months of rent upfront are also barriers for people experiencing short-term homelessness. So we need greater flexibility around waiving these requirements that would allow the process of securing safe and affordable housing to be expedited for a lot of people. And frankly, we might also wonder about the legality and the necessity of asking those questions up front in the first place. If they're providing barriers to secure and safe housing for people and families, then they're not creating safer communities of care. And that's exactly what any law or regulation should do. And so if that's not happening, it might be time to reevaluate some of those requirements on rental applications or housing applications anyway. So those are some options and solutions that can be enacted that will help people dealing with this issue of housing insecurity or homelessness to get back on their feet and to begin to rebuild the lives that they want to live. We know that could work, but what isn't working right now? Well, laws that criminalize basic acts of living, those aren't working. According to a 2019 report by the National Law Center on Homelessness and Poverty, quote, despite a lack of affordable housing and shelter space, Many cities have chosen to criminally punish people living on the street for doing what any human being must do to survive. That means that cities are criminalizing camping, sleeping outside, sleeping in your car, uh, lingering too long in an area, sitting somewhere, sleeping on the sidewalk. There are vagrancy laws, loitering laws, all kinds of laws in place across the nation designed to keep people from doing those basic human activities of sitting and sleeping outside. So here are some examples of cities across the country just to illustrate what this looks like day in and day out. Clearwater, Florida. 
Although 2013 data from the local continuum of care reveals that nearly 42% of homeless people in the area are without access to affordable housing and emergency shelter, the city of Clearwater criminalizes camping in public, sitting or lying down in public, begging in public, and sleeping in vehicles. Santa Cruz, California. A whopping 83% of homeless people in the Santa Cruz area are without housing or shelter options, yet the city criminalizes camping in public, sitting or lying down on public sidewalks, and sleeping in vehicles. North Manchester, New Hampshire. 12% of homeless people in the city of Manchester are without housing or shelter options, yet the city criminalizes sleeping, lying down, sitting down, camping in parks, and other public spaces. Virginia Beach, Virginia. Approximately 19% of homeless people in Virginia Beach have no option but to perform all of their daily functions outside due to a lack of access to housing and shelter. Yet the city of Virginia Beach makes it illegal to sit, lie down, beg, or sleep in vehicles anywhere within the city. Colorado Springs, Colorado. 13% of homeless people in the Colorado Springs area are without housing or shelter options, yet the city criminalizes sleeping in public, camping in public, and begging. Orlando, Florida. 34% of homeless people in the Orlando area are without shelter beds, yet the city restricts or prohibits camping, sleeping, begging, and food sharing. Now, this study is a, a few years old, so some of these ordinances may have changed, and enforcement can vary depending upon the time and place, but I wanted to provide a snapshot so you understand what is taking place day in and day out. And what happens when you arrest or issue a citation to someone who is unhoused? Well, if it's a citation, they likely can't pay the fines or fees, which can lead to further interactions with the police or additional arrests. Or they may not have access to regular mail, so they've got to go to a special place in town just to find the mail, which means they might miss a court summons and thus open themselves up to additional fines or warrants and thus arrests which in turn make it more difficult to find stable work and secure housing because you can't apply for jobs if you are in jail. And thus, their entire situation of homelessness gets exacerbated. This can trap folks in a cycle of criminalization that does nothing to help anyone. So to recap, day in and day out, people are falling into homelessness due to life situations and circumstances, and instead of being met with care, support, and a broad safety net, they're often met with unjust policies and laws that criminalize the very act and basic functions of living and make it really difficult to get back on their feet. That isn't the society that we're called to create. It isn't the world any of us want to live in. So what do we need to do to change that? And why should we feel compelled to change it? To answer the second question, I decided to pull a quote directly from the Mennonite Church USA Confession of Faith. It says, quote, We believe that God has created human beings in the divine image. God formed them from the dust of the earth and gave them a special dignity among all the works of creation. Human beings have been made for relationship with God, to live in peace with each other, and to take care of the rest of creation. This fundamental belief that people are made in the divine image requires us to honor, protect, and care for the unhoused and homeless population. Moreover, I'm arguing that it demands we get curious and ask ourselves what ideas, assumptions, and cultural beliefs cause us to harbor judgment or experience discomfort around them. 
Think about the people you pass that are unhoused or homeless. When you see them on the street, do you imagine them as being made in the divine image? When you look them in the eye, if you look them in the eye, do you see the divinity of God reflected back at you? Are the laws against vagrancy, loitering, or panhandling in your area designed to honor the dignity of unhoused people? Or are they in place to keep us from being reminded that this world is fundamentally unjust, especially as it pertains to the allocation of resources, and that we have made it that way? How does our own guilt at having access to housing and food affect our connection with those that might not? It is no easy thing to claim that human beings are made in the divine image. And if we're going to claim that as a confession of our faith, we've got to be willing to back that up through our beliefs and our actions. I'll be honest here. Sometimes I feel guilty for having money that I don't want to give when someone asks for it. I've justified my reticence by saying that they'll just use it for drugs or that they'll spend it and it won't really help them anyway. And this self-righteousness has allowed me to go about my day without giving it a second thought. I feel entitled to what is supposedly mine, and I fear that by giving freely of what I may not need, I'll somehow be putting myself in jeopardy of not having enough. But folks, that is not the gospel that is claimed. That is not the message of faith and the confession of faith that many of us profess day in and day out. We're called to give freely and generously. We are called to treat our fellow human beings as our neighbors and to love them as we love God. We are called to look at someone else and see the divine image imprinted and reflected back at us. So how might we act different? How might I act and feel different if I truly looked at someone and saw the image of God in them? How might I act different if I recognized that the image of God, the divine imprint, that is within me, is within every person I see on the street. It's within the man lying on the bench or the person forced to sleep in their car or the mother struggling in a shelter trying to make ends meet. What changes? What shifts? What is required of me if I'm to live out my faith truly and authentically in this way? But to be real with y'all, homelessness won't be solved by buying someone a sandwich or giving them $5 when they ask for it. And sometimes there might be a good reason not to do it. I'm not saying there isn't. I'm just bringing all of this up to ask us to consider both the systemic causes of housing insecurity and homelessness and to also evaluate our own hearts and minds, to check on our attitudes and beliefs because they always influence the choices we make. Day to day though, what can we do about this problem? We've covered policy changes, increased access to health care, increased access to options for those fleeing domestic violence. But for most of us that aren't policymakers that want to affect change in our local communities, how do we do it? Well, one, it's important to pay attention to your local government so that you can rally against laws which threaten unhoused people. Every year, there are new laws being debated that would criminalize basic human activity in an effort to control unhoused people or make them invisible. You can exert pressure by showing up and making your voice heard. Figure out where your city council's meeting and when they're meeting. Figure out what bills they're proposing and arguing against. 
Get in touch with the advocacy organizations that are keeping track of these efforts to push out the homeless population and follow them. Sign up for their newsletters or emails. Let them contact you and call on you to offer testimony in support of more favorable, more humane laws. You can also think twice before calling the police. Now, this may seem out of left field, but it's really not. Remember at the top of the episode, I talked about police harassment of the homeless population. It's a pretty big issue. And as we continue to see, even when the police are called to save a life, they can end one. That may seem like a sweeping generalization, but at this point, when over a thousand people a year are killed at the hands of police, we cannot keep taking that risk. And so when you see someone loitering on the sidewalk or sleeping on a bench or chilling in a car in the parking lot, don't call the police. There's a resource in the show notes of this episode that is designed to help you figure out what you can do instead of calling the police. It's broken down by city, so you just click on the city you live in, and it gives you a list of resources that might address different issues like housing or mental health crises, and it tells you who you can call and what organizations to contact instead of contacting the police. So familiarize yourself with that list and become more aware of what is offered in your city and your area. Learn the resources that are available so that you don't have to rely on the police to do a job that, frankly, they're not designed to do. You might be uncomfortable with someone sleeping in their car or on the sidewalk, but before calling the police or calling anyone, ask what it means to be a good neighbor. If you have the opportunity and it feels safe to do so, maybe have a conversation with them and ask how you might be helpful. Find out what they actually need instead of making an assumption and help connect them with the appropriate resources. Or just leave them alone. This is always an option. Sometimes doing nothing is the right choice. I also encourage you to get to know the people around you. There may be folks in your congregation or a step or two removed from your congregation that could use help when a crisis occurs. Remember, most of the time, homelessness isn't chronic. So if you're in a position to offer someone a room or a home while they get back on their feet, that could be the difference between a quick turnaround and languishing in the cycle of poverty. Take stock of the resources at your disposal. Take stock of the resources within your congregation and ask how you might best use them to honor the image of God imprinted and reflected in every person. How might you use your abundance in faithfulness to your neighbor? Finally, I'll just say this. I have been homeless before. I've lived in shelters. I've slept in a car. I've bounced from motel to motel and crashed with family. And I wouldn't wish that on anyone. I remind you of that to remind you that we have these assumptions about what it looks like and sounds like and feels like to be homeless. But the truth is, we don't know. Unless you've lived it, unless someone you love is going through it, you don't know. You can't know. Unless you're around these folks day in and day out and hearing their stories, seeing their faces, recognizing their voices... Everything we do is just an assumption. So check your assumptions, check your theology, check your actions to ensure that everything you do is in service of that divine image, that you're acting and living in love rather than in fear, rather than in scarcity. My hope is that after listening to this episode today, you take stock of those assumptions that you have about homelessness and homeless people 
and evaluate the responses that you offer. It just takes one bad day, and most of us can have our lives flipped upside down. So what would it take for everyone to have a home? We know the answers. Now let's get to work. Thank you for listening to the What Would It Take podcast. To view the source material for this episode, check out the show notes. If you'd like to find more great content from Anabaptist World, visit anabaptistworld.org. And if you want to learn more about me, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as Benjamin J. Tapper. Benjamin J. Tapper.